there are some opportunities that only come around once, and and you have to act on that opportunity or else it will be gone. Mark Cuban, uh, actually, turn to Luke chapter 12, and then I'll talk about Mark Cuban. Mark chapter or uh, Luke, excuse me, chapter 12. Mark Cuban is a uh, multi-billionaire worth 2.7 billion dollars. He's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's also an entrepreneur who uh, is on the TV show Shark Tank. And if you've seen the show, you know that they have all these these five entrepreneurs who allow these uh, up-and-coming uh, entrepreneurs to come in and show their prototypes to these successful investors and to see if they can get some money uh, to, to move to the next level of where their prototype is at. They want to get their invention out into the market a little farther, and so they need some help. And Mark Cuban is one of the guys who is the investor, and he looks at all these inventions. And when he makes an offer to the person, he often makes it contingent on an immediate answer. Like, you need to respond now. Okay, here, here's my offer. You need to respond now. You're not going to respond now? Okay, my, my offer's off the table. And he just puts them, puts them off that quickly. And I've seen times when people have come and they have, up until this point, used all their life savings, have mortgaged everything that they possibly could mortgage in order to get their product this far, and they have this one opportunity. And, for example, with Mark Cuban giving this one chance, I'll give you the money that you're looking for, uh, but you have to act now. People who live out of their basement or, and do all their work out of their basement, I should say, and, and they need this money, have to walk away because they were unwilling to make a choice at the moment that they had the opportunity. And they'll go back to that life of working out of the basement and very well could uh, drive them into the ground financially. They don't get another shot before the multimillionaires and the multibillionaire investors. And while I don't like the pressure tactic of Mark, Mark Cuban, how he does that, it helps to illustrate for us how critical it is for us to make a choice for the sake of God. We, th- we may think that the choice to follow God is unfair and that maybe it would be better if we did it after our life was over. That way we could have a whole lifetime of evaluation and we'd have an evaluation period. I, I looked back at my whole life and based on how I saw that you treated me, God, here is my choice. And if we wanted to accept God, we'd accept God at the next life. Or if we wanted to reject Him, we would reject Him. We have been given an opportunity to repent before God. God's given us the opportunity now to repent and to receive His gift of righteousness and a relationship and eternal life. And we only have one shot at making it. And that is this lifetime. This lifetime is our shot. And if we don't do it in this lifetime, it will be too late. Because when we reach the next life, it will be over. How we responded to God in this lifetime, how we responded to His Son in this lifetime, will determine our destiny. Now, we're going to talk later that it's not going to earn our destiny. It's not going to earn our place in heaven or hell. But how we respond to God has an effect on what is going to happen to us. And the difference between the right choice and a selfish choice is not going to be simply, oh, a big pile of money, like it is for these entrepreneurs who are coming in and standing before the investors. 
The difference between the right choice and a selfish choice is hell. Spending an eternity in hell or spending spending an eternity in heaven. Jesus has a lot to say here in Luke chapter 12 about... Uh, I'm sorry, it should be in Luke chapter 13. Sorry about that. I'm trying to figure out how does that passage work out. I think we already looked at that. Okay, Luke 13. And uh, we're going to read verses 22 to 35. Beginning in verse 22. This is the Word of God. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there, there are just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wants us to learn this evening we cannot miss out on the opportunity to get on the Lord's side now. Don't miss out on the opportunity to get on the Lord's side now. Verses 22 through 30, Jesus teaches that that we must be on the Lord's side now. The crowd in verse 22 asks a question. In, In verses 22 and 23, notice the question in verse 23, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Why might this person in the crowd ask a question like that? I I think we need to think about four factors in order to understand the answer to that question. Why would a person ask a question like that? First, he would ask that because, uh, or or we should know that we need to understand what Jesus has been teaching. In verses 18 through 21, remember what he's teaching? The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast or the leaven. Now, 
verse 22 begins by saying, and he was passing through. So it's clear that this question did not come immediately after he spoke the words of the, the parable of the leaven in verse 20 and 21. But, it, but Luke records it here because some, in some way these teachings are connected. What he had said about the, the parable of the, the, um, the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven have something to do with this question that follows. If the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed or yeast, like in verses 18 through 21, then does that mean that the followers of Christ will be very few? Right? Because that was the point of those things. They start out really small. We don't think they're going to have a whole lot of effect. And yet, what happens over time? The mustard seed grows to be 8 to 12 feet tall and birds nest in it. And other animals find shade from it. And the, the leaven is just so small in comparison to all the other ingredients and we don't think it's going to have any effect on those ingredients and yet it causes the bread to rise and feed enough uh, to, to fill 150 people. So if the kingdom of heaven is going to be like that, small, seemingly not important, and yet it's going to rise to something great, here may be the thought of the crowd. So, does that mean that there aren't going to be very many who accept your message? Are there going to be very few? Look at the question again verse 23. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Perhaps they had seen with their own eyes how small the the genuine followers, the genuine loyal followers of Christ were. Certainly, yes, there were big crowds that would come when He would heal and, and give out food and do miracles and so on. But when He got down to the hard teachings, were there very many? The second factor we need to consider in order to find out why He asked this question is that we need to understand that genuinely following Christ was difficult. And we could say, is difficult. Genuinely following Christ was difficult. John 6, 66, Jesus, it, uh, John records there, many turned away and did not follow Jesus anymore. This is after he had done the feeding of the 5,000 and he had started speaking about them eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The, the point is that every true disciple must acknowledge that he is the true God sent from the Father and that we can have no part with the Father if we don't accept the Son. And when he started teaching things like that, people were like, that's enough for me. I'm gone. And so John records, many turned away and did not follow him anymore. We need to understand that what Jesus had been teaching, parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we need to understand that following Jesus was difficult. And then thirdly, we need to understand that Jesus had very few genuine followers. As I mentioned, Jesus would gather large crowds when he would do miracles. But how many loyal followers did he really have? And probably less than a hundred at this time. Because of the triumphal entry, it's only a small crowd that greets him. And at his death, there are very few that stick with him. Most of them are standing afar off, right? That's uh, to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will what? Scatter. Even his own disciples couldn't stay very close to him because just too much for them to consider. And when it was time to bury him, there were only one or two who were interested in taking his body 
And then, as the believers were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in Acts 1 and 2, Luke records that there's only 120 people that are gathered. And I would suggest that those are probably most of, if not all, of the believers in the entire world. 120. Next, we need to understand that the number of genuine followers is not consistent with the gathering of the Jews that Jesus talked about. Remember, Jesus had said, listen, all the Jews are going to come flocking to Me. They're going to be My sheep. And people are looking around after He's teaching and saying, seems like the Jews are the ones throwing the stones. Seems like the Jews are the ones who are all the cynics. What do you mean all the Jews are going to follow you? There are very few Jews that are following you. You have a few of your disciples, but other than that, where are they? And then actually a fifth one, we need to understand that the question should, uh, could, have been pla- uh, could have been laced with pride. The question could have been laced with pride. Verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? The, co- the questioner here could have been gloating over the fact that he was one of the few who would enter. Like, I'm one of the few who is one of your loyal followers, and so... Hey, do we get something good? I mean, the disciples did this in another place. They're fighting over who would have first place in the kingdom. Maybe we'll get a better position since, uh, in the kingdom since, hey, there's only a few of us. And I think that's uh, probably part of the mentality of the question. I think this is going to be clear when Jesus finally gives an answer in verse 30. We'll come to that later. So the question is stated in verse 23, and then Jesus gives a reply in verses 24 through 30. Are there only going to be a few who are saved? The question is, and Jesus responds in this way. Verse 24, receive salvation while you can. Similar to his response when they were kind of amazed at the the, the killing that that Pilate brought about to the Gentiles who were offering sacrifices in the temple and the Tower of Siloam falling. And they're like, so what, what did they do? What, what kind of sins were they involved in? Jesus says, you know what you need to consider? Don't think about all that stuff, who's in and who's out. Think about where you are in relationship to eternity. Because if you don't all repent, you will likewise perish. And while Jesus answers the question that is asked in verse 23, He doesn't do so directly until later. Instead, he says in verse 24, there's a narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So are there just going to be a few? Jesus says there's a narrow door. Indirectly, he's saying there's not going to be very many that enter it. In Matthew 7:13, he calls it a narrow gate, and few there be that find it. But the emphasis here, as Jesus responds, is not on who's in and who's out, who enters and who doesn't enter, The emphasis is on what a person should do to make sure that they enter. Look at the verse. Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I think the point is is that there's going to come a time when it will be too late. They had that intention of, I will follow Christ eventually. It was the idea of delay. Like, I'm going to get things right with God eventually. And eventually turns into, you know, 
next month, next year, and it just keeps getting pushed on and on. Eventually, it's too late. And then they want to enter, and Jesus is saying, they won't be able to, like the five virgins who did not trim their lamps. And so Jesus turns the question from, how many are there going to be? Are there only going to be just a few who enter? And Jesus turns it from that to, will you enter? Are you going to be ready? In other words, the focus is on each one of us. Let me take the metaphor a little further. If we're standing on the outside of the narrow door, evaluating and observing who is going in and who is not, but not actually going through ourselves, then we are fools. And so he says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive now. He's not talking about earning salvation, but responding to the message before it's too late. We have a responsibility and an opportunity to respond now, and we need to before it's too late. So strive to do that. Receive salvation while you can. Then in verses 25 to 27, the opportunity to receive salvation is not indefinite. The opportunity to receive salvation is not indefinite. It has a termination period. In verses 25 through 27, some will claim they have a relationship with Jesus. Right? Once the door, or once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, verse 25, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, Jesus is saying to the crowd, and you're saying, Lord, open it up to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. And then you'll begin to say, verse 26, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. See how they're, they're saying, We're familiar with you. We know you. We spend time with you, Lord. So you have to let us in. Jesus is saying it's not enough to have a casual or social relationship with Jesus. We need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Because there will be many who had been around Him. There will be many who had seen Him perform miracles. There will even be many who had miracles performed on them who failed to repent, who failed to enter the door, who failed to believe in Him. And He will say, too late. I don't know you. Notice verse 27. And He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. That's what He said in verse 25 as well. And then He says, depart from Me, all you evil doers. Too late. The opportunity for us to come to Christ is now. We cannot delay. Some will claim they have a relationship with Jesus, and then, as we'll see here in just a second, some will claim they have a relationship with the prophets. Like, wait a second, we're Jews. We, our heritage includes people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so, you going to let us in? We have the same inheritance as, as other people of our heritage. We're of Abraham. Jesus is saying, listen, your lives show that you rejected the prophets, you opposed the will of God, and you failed to embrace the identity and work of Me and My offer of salvation, and therefore you are unwilling to turn from your sins, and therefore you show yourselves that in fact you are not a child of Abraham. 
Some will claim to have a relationship with Jesus and Jesus will say, it's not a genuine personal relationship and so I don't know you. Some will claim to have a relationship with the prophets and Jesus will say, it's not enough. The opportunity to receive salvation is not indefinite. And then, verses 28 and 29, your response to Christ now will will determine your destiny then. Your response to Christ now will determine your destiny. Verse 28, in that place, this is after he says, depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a description of hell. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west, and from north and south, and will, will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. There's two destinies that are seen here. One is an eternal destiny of weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell, or an eternal destiny of being with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophet, sitting at the table, reclining at the table. Your response to Christ will either send you to hell where you belong because of your unbelief or will allow you to recline at the table of the kingdom because you have believed in the Son of God. Those are the two choices. And those are the choices that you and I have now in this lifetime. And we need to make a choice. Because in the next lifetime, there will be a great reversal. Verse 30. Great reversal. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So after warning the crowd about their need to respond to Christ now, he finally gets around to answering the question. Look back at the question, verse 23. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Again, I think it could be that there's a hint of pride in that question, like we are some of the elite who will enter the kingdom. And if that's the case, then the answer from Jesus is that entering the kingdom is all of grace. And so don't be concerned about what position you have in the kingdom. But I think there's more to it than that when Jesus answers here in verse 30. I think Jesus is saying that those who we would consider first will actually not make it. And those who we we would consider last in this lifetime may actually make it. And the reason I say that is because of verses 28 and 29. Many people who are wearing the Abraham badge, they're the first people, right? We would expect of all people, people who who are of the same race as Jesus, those are the ones who would make it. And yet, Jesus is saying, they will be last. And there will be others who come to the door of the kingdom and they're not wearing an Abraham badge. They don't have a Jewish heritage. And God's going to say, welcome. Come on into the joy of my Lord. Uh, into the joy of your Lord. Let me challenge you with a helpful application that I found from one commentator, Daryl Bach. In our context, we might say, so instead of, okay, the people who are first, the Jews will be last, and the people who are last, the Gentiles, will be first. In our context, we might say it this way. Those who are first by virtue of their exposure to Christ through attendance at church will be last. The last is that they'll be excluded from blessing. And the only remedy is that each person must personally come to the door 
and receive what Jesus offers. It all comes down to knowing Jesus. Do you know Him? That's what He says. I don't know where you're from. You don't have a relationship with Me. We haven't gotten to know each other because you have rejected Me. The question was, will the saved be few? In verse 23. And the answer is, in the form of a question, will the saved be you? Don't worry about everybody else getting in until you are sure that you are getting in. And that's the point. Your primary focus in life should not be on who's in and who's out. That is important. A church has a responsibility to do that. But your primary focus ought to be on if you are in or you are out. And so Paul says it this way. You need to examine yourself. See if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Ask the question, am I in the faith? Do I believe in Jesus? Am I repenting of my sins? Make sure that you're on the Lord's side now. And then in verses 31 to 35, we see that the Jews were a greater threat to Jesus than Herod. The Jews were a greater threat to Jesus than Herod. Jesus was explaining to them that the works that He was doing was according to the Father's agenda. In verses 31 to 33, this next recorded event comes at the very same time that Jesus is calling people to repentance. And the Pharisees essentially interrupt Him and say, you need to get out of here. You need to go because Herod's going to kill you. Now, there's no indication that Herod, this was a made-up threat by the Pharisees. We think of the Pharisees as the, the most despicable of all creatures. But, but again, what you should notice is in verse 31, it says some Pharisees. So this is not uh, universal. All Pharisees, remember, some Pharisees actually come to Christ. So not all Pharisees respond like the rest. And so we think of them in, in negative terms often, and rightfully so. But, but they didn't make up a threat from Herod. It doesn't seem to me that they would make this threat up. I mean, Herod is a ruthless person, a ruthless leader. Remember that Herod is the one who beheaded John in chapter 9, verse 9. But why would the Pharisees tell this to Jesus? Why would they say, get out of town, Herod's going to kill you? It could be that they are genuinely concerned about Jesus. And that very well could be the case, since it says some Pharisees tell him. They're, they're kind of like, hey, you need to leave before Herod comes in and gets his hand in on this situation. Or it could be speaking of the Pharisees who brought the news uh, that they actually despised him like most of the rest of the Pharisees. And they were trying to intimidate him or to actually get him to leave the area. That he was a threat to their the work that they were trying to do of getting the Jews to follow them. If Jesus were fearful of Herod, Herod, He would leave the region that Herod ruled over and He would likely move on to Perea, which is a place where Pharisees had more power to act. See, the Pharisees had this power in Perea because the Roman government didn't want, they didn't want to deal with all this Old Testament rules and regulation with all you Jews. It's so weird and, and deep and you guys are so serious about that stuff. You guys have responsibility for that. 
Okay, we will carry out the capital punishment and all that, but but you can do certain punishments up to a degree. And so the Pharisees say, "Listen, we don't have any, we don't have any clout here in Herod's region. So if we can get out of it, if we can get him out of it, then we'll have him where we want him." And that very well could be the case. But Jesus responds to the threat in verses 32 and 33, and he says, "Go and tell that fox." Speaking of Herod. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day, I reach my goal. When he calls Herod a fox, he could be referring to him as a deceitful man, but that doesn't seem to make sense of the context, nor does it seem to make sense of what we know of Herod. Herod wasn't a cunning man, a deceitful man, as far as we know. He seems to be a very straightforward guy. He just says things like it is. So when he calls, when Jesus calls him a fox, more likely he's saying that that he's a fox in the sense he's worthless in his threat, because it's not keeping with the plan of God. That Herod's trying to get me to do something that's outside of the plan of God, and I can tell you that I'm not going to listen to that. In other words, Herod may have a plan for me to leave. Herod may have a plan for my death. But I know Jesus is thinking. That, that I am on God's time. And God's going to bring about my death in His time and in the place in which He has chosen. That's why He goes on to say at the end of verse 33, a prophet, uh, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. In His case, I can't die outside of Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. That's where I was, that's where God is leading me to. So the time for me to die is not now, and the place for me to die is not here. And so, here's the fox. Tell him that. Tell him that I'm going to stay around and do what I need to do. It's similar to John 11 when Jesus said to his disciples, while it is day, it's safe to walk around. Remember, they had heard about the death of Lazarus, their close friend, and they said, we need to go. We need to go. And Jesus says, we'll wait a little while. He says, all right, let's go. And they're like, wait a second, you can't go now. If you go now, everybody's going to want your head. And Jesus says, well, it's still day. I'll walk around. And then when it's night, then it'll be time for me to stop walking around. He's effectively saying, my time to die is not now. So I can go near Jerusalem. Bethany was two, two miles east of Jerusalem. I can go in that region and not be fearful of my life because it's daytime for me. I know that God has a purpose for my life that He's going to lead me to the cross. God had more for, for Him to do and therefore it was still daytime. And I think the same thing is true here. Listen, He may have a threat against my life, but God has more for me to do. I'm not going to be swayed by the actions of people. The actions even of the government. I'm going to be continually going about my Father's business. And you can tell Him that. Tell Him that Today and tomorrow I'm going to heal and the third day I'm going to reach my goal. Verse 33, I must journey today and tomorrow and the next day. He had work to do. And then in verses 33 through 35 we see that Jesus will be killed in Jerusalem. At the end of verse 33, a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. It doesn't work for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. It was the attitude of Jerusalem that kind of gave us, or, or them, the litmus test 
for the attitude of the nation in general. If you want to know what the nation was thinking, find out what people in Jerusalem were thinking. Okay? Similar to maybe Washington, D.C. or New York City or something. If you want to know what our country's like, go to those places. They're kind of the heartbeat of our country. And Jerusalem is that way. And, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, if I'm going to be killed by the nation as a whole, it's going to have to happen at the place, the core of the nation, Jerusalem. And so the real danger was not with Herod and his threats. The real danger was with the people of Jerusalem. They're the ones who wanted Jesus killed and would carry it out. And yet, even in spite of the fact that Jerusalem wanted him dead, Jesus was like the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15, who longs for his son to return. Even though it was the very people of Jerusalem who wanted him killed, he looks at them with great love and care and and welcomes them effectively with open arms, saying, I wish you would come to me. That's what he says in verse 34. He just gets finished saying that I'm going to die at the hands of the people of Jerusalem in verse 34. And then verse 35, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Notice the last part of the verse. But you would not have it. Literally, I would gather you, but you would not. You would not come. You don't want me to gather. It's like the, the child that you want to pick up and they give you the stiff arm. They don't want to be touched now. Hey, Jerusalem's like that. Jesus is saying, I'm ready to gather you under my wings. You wouldn't have it. And the result of this found in verse 35. Behold, your house left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. Your house could be referring to the temple, but it's probably referring to the nation as a whole. That as a nation, they would be left desolate and forsaken. Why? Because God no longer lives there. The worst kind of disaster that could fall on Jerusalem. At the end of verse 35, we see the announcement of final judgment. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words should ring in your head and remind you of something. It should sound familiar to you. They are a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. But also, probably this is where you're reminded of it, it they are fulfilled at where? Blessed is he, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When does that happen? At the triumphal entry, right? When Jesus actually comes into the city, comes on the colt of a donkey, and they lay down the palm branches for him. But it's the Gentiles who do so. And that could be what Jesus is talking about here. Look at the text again. And I say to you, you will not, speaking through the Jewish crowd, you will not see me until the time comes when... I come into the town on the donkey. That could be what he's saying. The problem is, is that the Jews don't say these words at the triumphal entry, do they? 
the crowd is made up of primarily Gentiles. The Jews don't greet him with those words from Psalm 118. No, instead they greet him with the words, Crucify him. Crucify him. And what has he done? Shouldn't I rather hang on to Barabbas and release Jesus? Crucify him. Those are the words that they greeted him with when when he came to Jerusalem. And further, Matthew records the prediction the prediction that we read about here, you will not see me again until you hear these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew records this very event after the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry had already happened. Why would he say, I'm not going to see you again until then? See, one thing you need to keep in mind is that Luke doesn't record this in chronological order. He's, he's doing it more on a topical level. There is a general chronology that he follows okay, the life of Jesus. But but he, he kind of takes stories and moves them around based on the type of teaching that he has. That's why the, we tend to see a lot of the same topics as we go through these passages. But Matthew does tend to record more chronologically than Luke. And so he records the triumphal entry and then this conversation with the Pharisees. Listen, you're not going to see me again until you hear these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not talking about the triumphal entry that had just happened. Talking about something else. And most likely, I think, that it has to be referring to the second coming. When Jesus will have a proper triumphal entry and where the Jews will finally recognize Him while the rest of the nation is judged for their unbelief. They will hear those words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until that time, you're not going to see me again. You're not going to have a relationship with me. Don't miss out on the opportunity to get on the Lord's side now. Your future judgment or blessing, whichever it turns out to be, is connected to your present response. How you respond today, how you respond in this lifetime, will have an effect on where you end up. And many will try to enter when it's too late because they delayed, thinking I've got more time. And so the point of this passage and the point of what Jesus has been teaching that we must repent now. Don't wait for the Master to come back and then say, okay, now that the Master's back, now I'm going to start getting about the service that He told me to do. It'll be too late. Outward contact with Jesus means nothing. In other words, just a merely social relationship with Jesus means nothing. We have to inwardly receive Him. That's what John 1 says. That Jesus came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. So what He's done is He's made it open to all of us that as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the privilege to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name. And so we must inwardly receive Him. We can't just have this exterior relationship with Jesus. I'll be around people who love Jesus. I'll talk about Jesus. I'll do the Bible reading thing, but never actually have a deep relationship with Jesus where we 
talk with Him and obey Him and listen to Him and respond to Him. Outward contact with Jesus will mean nothing when we come to Him with that sort of mindset. On the last day, He will say, I don't know where you're from. And depart from me. You evildoers. There will be two kinds of people in the end. Those on the inside and those on the outside. The door will close one day. The narrow door will be no more. And so we need to decide now. That is, in this lifetime, while the door remains open. And if you're thinking, well, I can decide later. I've got more life. I've got 20 years. I've got 30 years. And I would say that you're not thinking properly. You don't know when your last breath is going to be. You don't know when the Lord's going to come. It's like a thief that comes to your house. You don't know when He's coming. Jesus says, that's how I'm going to come. That's how this life's going to end for you. It's going to happen when you don't expect it. And so always be ready. Repent now while the door remains open. While Jesus says, come, I would love to have you come to me to gather you under my wing, like He said to Jerusalem. Come to Him now. And we do that by repenting of our sins and believing that His work was enough. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity for us to repent and to come to You. Thank You that this room is full of people who have done so. But there may be one or two here that that have not done so and have thought I'll just take some more time. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word to convict their hearts tonight through the words of Jesus that says to make the choice now. We we cannot wait. The the, uh, final destiny of our souls will be affected by how we respond in this lifetime. And Lord, we see that as an act of mercy on your part. That you would give us a choice. That you would give us the opportunity and you would provide for us your word and your spirit to enliven our hearts, to cause this to happen. And so we pray that this work would be done through your power alone, that we would give you the praise. In Jesus' name.